Well, we're going to be spending our time uh, back in John. Um, so if you want to flip your Bibles back to uh, John 20. And why don't I pray as we come under the Word of God. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. Uh, we pray that uh, you may grow our confidence in it this morning uh, and grow uh, our love and our knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, there is a, uh, a small tribe on an island uh, in Vanuatu who had a legend that a god would one day visit them. Uh, according to their ancient tales, the son of a mountain spirit uh, had travelled over the seas to a distant land. Uh, there he married a powerful woman and would one day return to them. And as it happens in the 20th century, uh, the tribe had decided this deity had returned and his name was Prince Philip. Uh, this is a real thing, the Prince Philip movement, um, this little tribe in Vanuatu, and they sincerely believe that Philip is a god. Um, apparently this occurred when he and the Queen visited in the 60s and they saw the respect that the, um, the officials had to the Queen and they drew the conclusion, well, you know, they're showing her respect, she must be the Queen, so he must be a god. Uh, god would return to them. And apparently uh, their, their, kind of their belief expresses itself in a number of ways. Uh, they, uh, apparently in their homes they have a photo of, of Prince Philip uh, and every morning uh, they would pray um, to, and ask him for blessing on their bananas and yam crops. Uh, however, um, well, uh, Prince Philip obviously had a, quite a remarkable life and did a lot of good in his life. Uh, there is no evidence that he was, in fact, a deity. And sincere though their belief was, Prince Philip, uh, by his own admission, was not a god. But I guess this brings to my mind, as we look at this passage and as, we, um, as I was reading and thinking about this, the question of the legitimacy of our belief, uh, the nature of what it means to believe and to have faith. Because Christians, we believe that faith in Jesus is no sham, but it's the real deal. Well, do we have enough of a grounding for us to believe of course, the way that one defines faith at this point uh, is important. Um, those with uh, atheistic convictions will claim that faith is belief without evidence, uh, that it is the opposite of reason. It's something that people do because it makes you feel good or it's socially uh, acceptable. However, when it comes down to it in this kind of view, that faith is a fantasy. Or maybe others can see faith a little bit more positively, uh, kind of in the X-Files mode, or I want to believe. Um, you believe that something's out there, you can feel that something's out there, but you don't have anything to prove it with. Now, on the other hand, on the opposite side of the spectrum, um, some might say, well, faith is um, absolute certainty with no, not an ounce of doubt, um, like a mathematical equation. Uh, perhaps this is the impression that maybe you get, um, that Christians should never have any doubts, um, that we should always be certain. Well, I think this passage is a helpful one for us, um, and a very human one, in that it helps us to understand what faith is and what faith uh, is not. Uh, but it also draws to mind the fact that our beliefs uh, and what we believe and have faith in, they have real consequences. Uh, because there is no more important a question than whether Christ rose from the dead. I mean, we saw that in this uh, passage in John, but also in that 1 Peter passage. Uh, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, it means everything. If he didn't, it all means nothing. So, we come to this passage in John. Um, and if you were here last week, you would have uh, heard about the passage where Jesus uh, appeared to these, the other disciples. Um, they, had been doubt, they had been in despair, but 
the risen Lord Jesus appears to them and their despair turns to joy. Uh, their faith is rekindled as they see that their, uh, their Lord who was dead is now alive, defeating sin and death. Uh, unfortunately, one of them missed out. Uh, that's Thomas. So if you've got your Bible there, we go to verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Uh, for whatever reason, Thomas had not been there when Jesus had appeared to them, uh, perhaps desiring to be alone um, over the kind of the despair of what had happened. Um, and maybe it's good that he, this actually did happen because this is, uh, this is written and this happened um, so that we might know and we might be encouraged by this, um, these events. But anyway, the other disciples, they tell him of the great news, Jesus is risen and he refuses to believe. Verse 25, but he said to them, unless I see the nails in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, uh, I will not believe. Um, it's pretty graphic, right? Like, unless I can physically touch, see him, I will not believe. Uh, Thomas is stubborn. Uh, the evidence of the other disciples' testimony, that's not enough for him. He's the kind of person who needs to see it for himself. Um, and it has to be on his terms, too. And maybe this kind of thinking, this kind of statement is familiar to you. Uh, when I was in university, uh, I went to, along to the AFES group called the EU. Uh, one of the days, I was walking to you know, one of the Bible studies that they ran, and who should I run into but an old acquaintance from school called Andy. Now, Andy, I remembered from school, was a very outspoken atheist. Um, he used to kind of mock Christianity quite boldly. And so we got to talking, catching up, and he asked me where I was going, and I thought, oh, okay, here we go. Uh, and so I told him, uh, and we had a great, actually had a great conversation. Uh, but it came down to this. He said, look, I think Christianity, that's all well and good. It sounds good. But if God really wants me to follow him, then he, he should show himself to me. And then I'll believe, no questions asked. I imagine that you have had conversations like this or even thoughts like this. I mean, surely God can appear to us if he wanted. Uh, so what should our response be to this kind of thinking? We'll get into that in a second, um, because Thomas's doubts, they, they do seem understandable, don't they, on the surface? Uh, because the resurrection would seem to go against all human experience. I mean, dead people do not come back uh, to life. Or perhaps he thought of alternative explanations. I mean, perhaps they'd all just imagine seeing Jesus. Or in this you know, very kind of um, spiritual culture, maybe he thought, well, maybe they've seen his ghost or some kind of spirit, but certainly not the risen Lord. But I should say that Thomas's doubt, I don't actually think, is as reasonable as it first appears, because he had been a close follower of Jesus for many years. He had seen countless, countless incredible things that Jesus had done, including raising Lazarus from the dead uh, a couple of weeks uh, before. So why would the disciples, and why would the disciples, um, this is another kind of thing, why would the disciples who had been despairing like him suddenly all be overjoyed? Could they all have really uh, experienced a hallucination, the men and the women. And notice Thomas doesn't actually really go to investigate the empty tomb or when it's told that he really gets into talking to the eyewitnesses. He just kind of wants to stay where he's at. You know, God needs to engage, you know, show me, show, uh, me um, Jesus risen. I need to be able to see him and touch him. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. And I suppose we can ask, well, is God obligated to engage with us in the way that we demand? And the answer being, well, no, 
Uh, I mean, if I called up Parliament House uh, after this sermon and I asked for Scott Morrison, you know, to get down to Springwood right now for a coffee, uh, I'm not even going to get through. My phone call is not even going to get through because the PM is obviously not obligated um, to do that. And as God's creatures and fallen creatures at that, uh, we are in no position to make any demands of God. And I think tragically, we can try and attach strings or conditions to our faith. God, I'll, you know, I'll believe in you if you bless me. Um, if you show yourself, then I'll follow you. But the reality is God does not need us. We need him. And furthermore, and perhaps this is the more important point, that this, this is actually not how our sinful hearts operate. The Pharisees, they saw Jesus' works. Israel in the Old Testament, they saw uh, many wondrous signs and that they did not believe because the issue was... Um, their hearts, their sinful hearts, they needed a change of heart. And so we need something more than just seeing or encountering uh, miracles. And yet, despite all this, despite that God is not obligated to us, um, he actually does engage with us so that we might have our doubts dispelled and we might move to devotion. Let's go back to John and have a look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Thomas had remained stubborn, uh, apparently, for a week in his unbelief. But in a mirror incident to the previous uh, appearance, Jesus appears and says, Peace with you. Um, meaning, I think, have no fear. And then God is at, you know, you are at peace with God. And then it, Jesus like specifically goes to Thomas in verse 27. It says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, I think in this moment we see the character of Jesus, don't we? Uh, he could have just kind of written off Thomas, um, you know, condemned him. Um, and yet he condescends even to this outrageous demands. We see that Jesus bears with us even when we are struggling. And I think that is an attitude that we should have to others when they are struggling to trust in God or in his goodness or whether they are saved um, because that is the way that Jesus bears uh, with us like he does with Thomas. But when Jesus does say, um, stop doubting and believe, I think there is a, a rebuke to Thomas because Thomas should have believed. Um, he'd been given more evidence than most if he had the eyes to see it. And Thomas realises that uh, he had been terribly mistaken. Uh, not only... Um, had Jesus appeared to him, apparently he'd overheard, um, you know, his statement and his conditions. And what he thought was impossible was, in fact, very possible. Uh, in uh, ancient and medieval Europe, there was a phrase, um, all swans were white. And that was a known truth, and the phrase, a black swan, well, that was used to refer to something that was impossible. Because everyone knew that swans were, of course, always white. There was no such thing as a black swan until you know, some European explorers came to Australia and uh, ran into some black swans. And so the, the meaning of the phrase had to change. And Jesus, I guess, is the ultimate black swan. Um, he turns reality on its head and shows us how things really are. And we see in Jesus' uh, appearance in the resurrection, we, we learn two things about uh, his conversation with Thomas um, and about his resurrection itself. First, we see that uh, he really did rise again. Uh, he is no ghost or phantom spirit. He's uh, bodily raised. And secondly, uh, I find this interesting, um, that his wounds are still visible. We think that if he was resurrected, um, they would be removed, uh, a perfect resurrected body. And yet they are not because these marks are his glory. 
They are the scars of his triumph, um, his victory over sin um, for our forgiveness. Anyway, seeing this and encountering this, all of Thomas's resistance melts away. Uh, and note there isn't even a hint that um, Thomas actually seeks to try and, and touch him. Uh, he realises that he has been, uh, I think, a fool. And he makes, I think, one of the greatest confessions in the New Testament, my Lord and my God. Now, for a first century Jew to say this is incredible. Um, and to my mind, it's one of the most convincing um, things about the Christian faith Uh, Because like Thomas and like the rest of the disciples who were Jews, they knew that there was only one God. And they believed that any representation of him in physical terms uh, was a most grave sin. And to their mind, their assumption would have been that any person who claimed to be a deity would be an absolute, um, well, it would be the greatest kind of blasphemer of all. It's It's a huge and enormous barrier. And yet, almost unthinkable, and yet here they are, worshipping a man as God. Um, They're not suddenly worshipping two gods, but they've realised that they can both encounter God as father and as son. And they would go on to testify to this truth and what they had seen. They would go to their deaths um, saying this. And so I guess lest we think it was easier for them to make this claim at the time, um, you know, maybe if we think, oh, we're there, you know, in a more superstitious kind of time. Well, I'd say it was much more difficult for the challenges they faced because they were, they would have known this, they would have been guaranteed uh, opposition from their fellow Jews who would have thought them blasphemous to call Jesus God. Um, they would have, they knew that they would have been um, opposed by the Romans who would have seen any claim um, of lordship to anyone other than the emperor as absolutely traitorous. So either they were absolutely deluded or they could not deny what they had witnessed that Jesus Christ was the Lord and was God and they could not do anything other than worship him and this really changed them according to early church tradition Thomas um, traveled far with the gospel apparently getting as far as India before he was martyred and so I think the apostles testimony is one of the most valuable things that we have um, as we see what they were willing to endure and so Uh, If Thomas shows us anything about faith, it's that it's not always a a straightforward or an easy affair. Um, We ourselves wrestle with doubt and unbelief. Uh, The apostles did, and and so do we. I mean, that's part of the experience of the Christian life, I think, um, as those who are still um, experiencing the reality of sin. We can have doubts about the truth. You know, did this really happen? We can have doubts about Christ's value. Is this really worthwhile giving my life for? We can have doubts about Christ's goodness. Is this really how I should live? We can have doubts about assurance. Is this really um, too good to be true? And yet, I think faith is not opposed um, to doubt. It can exist even with doubts, but it works through them. It seeks to resolve them. It doesn't push them aside or pretend that they don't exist. Uh, It's what is done when doubt knocks at the door that matters. Um, So for Thomas, uh, it came with stubborn disbelief. That was a bad response to his doubt. Uh, But for us, we should seek um, to answer our doubts so that our faith might be strengthened and refined. So how might we do this? Well, we we pray, uh, we speak with others, and most importantly, and I'll come back to this later, I think we go to encounter Jesus in his word. Um, I think that's really important. This incident here uh, shows us also that 
there is an answer for those who haven't seen Jesus, uh, who could naturally well say, well, you know, it's easy for these guys. Look, they get to see him, right? Even, you know, Thomas gets his appearance. Well, if you look at what Jesus says, he says this. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think the point is, is this. It's Thomas, you would have been better for you if you had believed when the other disciples had told you. Uh, because it is a greater thing to believe uh, as those who have not yet seen um, the Lord. Let's trust in him. And the reality is, whether in the first century or the 20th century, um, people are blessed ultimately by believing in Christ on the account of the good news. Faith comes by hearing or by reading. It comes by the word. And I guess if there's a question of can we trust um, ultimately something that is based on the accounts of other people, well, the reality is we do that all the time, every day. I mean, you watch the news, you're, you're doing that. You know, you take your car to a mechanic. You're trusting that they're going to know what they're doing all the time. And the question is, can we, we trust them? Um, and so, I th- and I, to add to that, I think we have really good reasons to trust um, the witness of, of the apostles. And all of this, um, this, this statement of Jesus, talking about not seeing and yet believing and in the hearing of the word, leads us to John's ultimate invitation. That's why I think it immediately follows this incident. An invitation for us to come and to receive life. Verse 30. Uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, This account uh, is not just written as an interesting tale, but it is written for a purpose, that we might believe, that we might trust in the truth of this account. Which brings us back to that question of what faith really is. And we see that faith is not to be thought of as belief without evidence. Uh, When Hebrews says um, that faith is the confidence of what is hoped for and the conviction of what is not yet seen, uh, it's assuming that it is a trust based on truth, not in spite of the truth. Uh, Our faith that Jesus will one day return and save us and we have the forgiveness of sins is based on the truth of the testimony uh, of the disciples. And so, we have this invitation. Uh, And it's an invitation for us to, I think John's inviting us when he says these things are written, to go back and to read the things that has been claimed about Jesus here, but all the things that are claimed about him in the gospel. Uh, And for you to answer the question for yourself, is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? Uh, And that's important because the question of belief is ultimately not an intellectual one, as I said before, but it is a spiritual issue. It is by the work of the Spirit's power that our hearts are softened, that our eyes are opened, and that trust comes. And that's why it's not possible to see people to come to faith alone on the basis of just uh, of kind of rational apologetic arguments. Um, I think we can give really good reasons why we can believe and trust the accounts of the Gospels. Uh, But ultimately, people need to have their hearts changed. And I think uh, to add to this, we see that we meet Jesus uh, and know him through his word. Uh, The Bible is not just a list of human accounts, but it is the inspired word of God. And I think it's no coincidence that John begins his gospel by saying, you know, that Jesus is the word, uh, the one who is the content of all God's creating and saving purposes. Uh, The word of God is all about Jesus ultimately, all points back to him. And so when you read the Bible, when you read, you know, God's word, 
uh, you actually encounter Jesus in a real and in a profound way. Which is why I think one of the most helpful things that I have found in evangelism is not just giving somebody a list um, of really great arguments. They can be really helpful um, to kind of knock down things that are kind of in the way. But to introduce people to Jesus. Um, so they might see him in his word. They might see his goodness and his mercy. And we can trust that Jesus does work through his word. And again, this is also, uh, I think, uh, one of the great cures to when we are finding ourselves in doubt. It's not that I just sit down and think about all my doubts and my issues, uh, but actually I should go to God with them. And how do I know what God uh, thinks and how am I reassured about his great and precious promises? Well, I go to his word. And so this invitation here actually bears um, the greatest importance um, to us. Uh, we need to take it seriously. Now, I'm currently uh, in an NRL tipping competition with the rest of the church staff team. Uh, so what that means is you pick the games that are on for the week and whoever gets the games right you know, is on top of the ladder. Now, it's all very fun and I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not doing well. But even if I did, even if I knew exactly the right kind of choices to make, it actually makes no difference if I play or if I don't. Um, the choice doesn't matter at all. But the choice here really does matter. Uh, John puts everything on the line here. It's all or nothing. Either Jesus rose from the dead and must be taken more seriously than anything else in life, or it's nothing. And I think we have confidence here that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, to life with God and to know him in eternity. And that's what saving faith comes down to. It's a personal trust in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so we have to think, does this make a difference to us? Or are we indifferent, maybe like me with my NRL team? And I guess one question I could ask would be, and I think it's maybe a helpful one, what difference would it make to you if Jesus had never risen from the dead? What difference would it make to you if Jesus had never risen from the dead? Would it change anything? I mean, I imagine for many of us, it would um, change a lot of things. Um, but are there, something, are there some ways that we wouldn't actually change? And if that's true, maybe that reveals something about where we sit with God. Um, this truth is not for us to sit there indifferently, but to trust in it and to know it. Uh, and that's of the greatest importance. And so, I guess to conclude, uh, this passage declares to us the glory of faith. That while we don't yet see the Lord face to face, we can know that with certain hope uh, that one day we will and that we can have a trust now in the promised salvation he offers. That's what Peter praises the church for um, back in 1 Peter uh, verse 8. Uh, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Uh, we have a, a greater and a more sure hope um, uh, much more than the, that the islanders did in, in, you know, in, than Prince Philip. Uh, we can really can trust that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he has defeated sin and death, and that if we trust in him, uh, then we can have salvation. And so, I, I guess the question is, are we living uh, as if that is true? Does it really change our lives? Is that leading us to devotion um, for God uh, in the way that we live each and every day? And what a good thing it is we have a, a, a Lord who shows us mercy, even in our doubts, um, that he invites us to come and see who he is and what he has done um, for us and for our salvation. 
So why don't I um, pray now uh, that God would continue um, to grow us in the confidence of what his son Jesus has done. And Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your saving plan. We thank you that Jesus uh, really did die for our sins and that he really did rise from the dead and that this opens up the door to life and a relationship with you. We thank you that he did this um, purely out of his love and out of his mercy that we might know you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us when we find um, ourselves in unbelief or in doubts. We pray that uh, you might draw us back to him, um, that we might see his goodness and his love for us, and we might have, um, yeah, you might open our eyes to the real, um, the real assurance and hope that we can have that um, it is true uh, what happened and it really does matter. And Lord, we ask that we would see this is not a thing to be indifferent about but a thing um, to have faith in to have that personal trust in and that it would change us uh, that it would change the way we live each and every day um, that we would see it as the most important thing and lord we pray um, that more and more um, we would be putting uh, our lives under the lordship of your son and so we pray all this in his name amen